This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. And he really wanted to look at these service members and look at this dwell time. And he would kind of say, hey, there's a certain number of days like you have to be home within, I think, like a two year period. Because he was just seeing that so many of these service members were coming home and they they didn't have the resources then and they didn't really know how to take care of them. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. Last December, I attended the Reagan National Defense Forum and sat down with Shannon Clark, Senior Vice President for Federal Research and Development at Palantir. We discussed her decision to deploy Palantir technology to support Navy SEALs. Please excuse the extra noise from the hustle and bustle of the conference happening around us. So welcome, Shannon. I'm so happy to be speaking to you here live at the Reagan National Defense Forum. So to get us started, we'd love to know what first got you interested in the national security space? Thank you for having me. Yeah, I did not grow up anywhere near the national security arena. My father was in the military for a few years, but I have no exposure to national security until I I came to Washington, D.C., and I I went to Georgetown. And while I was at Georgetown, 9-11 happened. And I could look out my dorm window, and there was the Pentagon burning. And what a moment for me to see something like that, to see... M Street, you know, this beautiful picturesque street in Georgetown covered with Humvees and military walking around. And I just remember walking down the streets of D.C. in the weeks after 9-11 when you could drop a pin and people would hear that. I mean, it was so silent and somber. And I was studying languages at Georgetown and I didn't know if I wanted to join the Peace Corps or I wanted to be in the Foreign Service, but I knew I wanted to have some sort of impact to help our national security. And so I I became an intelligence analyst and kind of used my international relations interest and study that moment of seeing what happened to this country. And then also just my love of languages and working with people of other cultures to really apply that towards being a counterterrorism analyst. And so that was my first job out of school. And it's kind of just really set the tone, I think, for my entire career. What a set of issues to grapple with immediately out of out of school, too. At 20, you know, at 22 years old. Yeah. yeah, when all of a sudden you're trying to save the world from the next terrorist attack. It's a pretty daunting task. Yeah. No pressure <laughs> or anything. So the decision you wanted to talk about today was about deploying Palantir technology to support the Navy SEALs. So what was going on at the time that that led to this decision to, to do so? Right. So I spent, like I said, the early part of my career just as an intelligence analyst and using all sorts of technology to find who is the next terrorist, where are they, you know, where, what are the hot spots in the world we need to look at. And all of this time, our men and women are deploying at a rate that was higher than anything anyone had ever seen before. As an intel analyst deployed with some of these special task forces and countries, and I remember talking to these SEALs and these service members, and they would tell me that they had 
deployed eight or nine times and it was 2009. And, and like the, in terms of the deploy to dwell ratio, like they didn't yeah. have much time at yeah, home. Not at all. And I could think about their families and how they did that. And I can't imagine sustaining that. I can't imagine as a new mom having a husband that once a year is gone for four or five months at a time and having to raise a child on her own, but also just that fear of, is my husband going to come home? Or, you know, in some cases, wives too, right? So we were, you know, it was 2012, 2013, and really it had just caught up with everyone. And and Admiral McRaven started this initiative at this time. Just It was called Preservation of the Force and Family. And he really wanted to look at these service members and look at this dwell time. And he would kind of say, hey, there's a certain number of days like you have to be home within, I think, like a two-year period. Because he was just seeing that so many of these service members were coming home and they they didn't have the resources then and they didn't really know how to take care of them. So one of the things we did was we said, okay, we've used Palantir technology to do that, to find the terrorists, to find the places in the world we need to focus on, the hotspots, the you know, the webs of danger. How do we turn it around and instead of looking externally at the enemy, look internally at ourselves? And this software that we built was really meant to look at how many times were these soldiers away? Were they in areas where other soldiers around them, or excuse me, other SEALs around them were getting injured? And if that was happening, like, okay, what would the effect maybe of the broader cohort of SEALs because they were close to someone that had passed away or had suffered from traumatic brain injury? And then how do we make sure that we're giving attention to these individuals and these service members and focusing in on them because and making sure they don't get lost in the shuffle. They come home, you know, they go on vacation for a few weeks, but really maybe they were suffering from something that we didn't really pick up on right away. Well, yeah, and, and when you go through, I mean, I have never obviously been a Navy SEAL or, you know, and I never served in the armed forces, but thinking about the kinds of situations that they've been put in repeatedly, three weeks vacation is not going yeah, to exactly. scratch that itch. Right. And I, I always say redeployment is harder than deployment because when you go away and you can just focus on your job, I think if any of us were just someplace where we focused on our job and that's all we were doing, we didn't have, you know, anything else going on in terms of like family matters. You know, you don't even have to go to like drop off your dry cleaning or go to the grocery store. You're just focused on your job. In some ways, it's not easy, but it is in the sense of like you're singularly focused on one thing. But when you come home and you have to reintegrate with your family and they don't know how to reintegrate you sometimes because they've been doing all the drop-offs, the grocery store thing themselves, and now they have to bring you back into their family. And it's it's so hard. And you see this, and I think that it's even when you do get to take vacation for three weeks, it's the months after that that it takes for them to get reacclimated to their family. And I always say that it's, you know, it's harder. And sometimes there's no fighting when you're away because there's almost nothing to fight about but then you come home and you're together again right that's that's exactly right it's a profound transition back into the home yeah and so much has changed while they've been gone and it seems to me that the defense community has sort of somewhat recognized this as an issue but like maybe not prioritized it maybe the way it it ought to be in terms of thinking about our service members long-term mental health and that of their 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 families yeah and I think at the time, no one realized then we can actually apply some technology to help this, to like help separate the noise and help determine like where we should look. Again, just instead of looking externally, it's like, where is that bad guy? It's like, how do we look at where those people are that might need help? And being able to apply technology to that was just so powerful because it's not just a word of mouth of, hey, I don't think Joe or Susan or whatever is feeling great, but that's actually some data behind it that might surface someone that maybe you weren't even thinking about. So for me... I think that that was one of the most important things. And then also just 
how do we communicate and talk about this to leaders about how you can apply technology to it? Because again, I think they were all, a lot of leaders were doing what they do best, which is like, I don't care if I have any technology, I'm just going to find some sort of solution, whether it's a pen and paper, I will figure it out the hard way if I have to, but like, how do we actually help them surface things that maybe they weren't even thinking about? Mm -hmm. So that was just something. And I think, like I said, it's kind of one of the more proud things that I worked on in my career, just helping them take better care of themselves. So do you feel that being a woman, on this team and impacted how this technology was was deployed, applied, explained? It's interesting because I think starting out in my career, I didn't really know anything different than working in a male-dominated environment. My first job, being an intelligence analyst, not a lot of women. Being an intelligence analyst in the Department of Defense, even fewer women. Going to the Pentagon, working with the senior staff at the Pentagon, very, very few women. I mean, there was there were no women general officers walking around. The women that were working at the Pentagon and the E-ring were the secretaries, you know, and that, that, the admins. That was it. And then coming to the tech industry, coming to an early stage startup, again, zero focus on national security. Like, you know, I look around the office at lunch and I could see one or two other women and there was just no one there. So I've always really known that environment. And I think that I always forget that women have such a high emotional IQ and they're just so there's things that I feel like we pick up on that, you know, for better or worse, sometimes men are just oblivious. I say this to my husband all the time, which he doesn't, you know, fight me on. But I think that at a tech company, you're so focused on the tech, you're so focused on the engineering and you don't think about some of the outside factors that are a part of that. So for me, being a part of this particular program was, you know, working with these really young, smart engineers that were just heads down, focused on coding, focused on developing the product. It was amazing, but they didn't think about how to translate this into speak that anyone else could understand. And I felt like they were doing all this amazing work, but they actually weren't getting credit for it at first. And so when I started flying out to California every week and working with the engineers, I just all of a sudden, and I feel like they got it and it clicked and they were like, wow, we're doing this great engineering work. We're building this thing. And now we're actually getting credit for it because she understands how to talk about it, how to present it, how to make it so that it's impactful in front of senior leaders in a way that I think it just wasn't innate to them the way that I do think was for me. And I think I really do think is for most women, just because that's, in my opinion, how we're wired. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time.